to the Jungle Times, a podcast that explains how understanding nature's management principles can help you enhance your personal power and leadership skills. In a world beset by climate change, mass migration, and social unrest, fake news and bad politics are threatening the future of our planet. This series of timely presentations will demonstrate how nature's 4.5 billion years of success is based on the emergence of creative leaders. It is my pleasure to introduce your guide, the only researcher on Earth who treks tropical jungles in a wheelchair, author and training consultant, Lawrence Poole. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Lawrence Poole. And this is episode five. It's called Love is Magic. Its subtitle could be How Nature's Law is the Key to a Joyful Life. To explore such an important subject, I'll divide my presentation into three parts. In part one, I'll examine love as physical energy. And because love is energy, I'll go on to explain how it can be measured as amplitudes and magnitudes. An amplitude describes the measure and distance from a set position, while a magnitude determines whether an object is larger or smaller than others in the same category. So, in part two, I'll explain love is seven amplitudes of energy, from matter to consciousness. And in part three, I'll tell you about love as five magnitudes, from selfish to the limitless oscillations of vibrating energy, the L-O-V-E of God. I'll conclude with a few observations on love as nature's law in these jungle times. I'll begin from the perspective of nature's management rule. In my first presentation in this series, called 4.5 Billion Years of Success, I explained how nature's law is survive and prosper. I also said that even if survive is very much an ego-driven pursuit, I survive, Prosper is not even a concept that can be entertained by one individual. Prosperity is a we word. Prosperity implies doing with others. As such, nature's survive and prosper law is altruistic self-interest. And because nature does not play favorites, I often say that the law requires every individual to serve the interests of a larger group. This because larger groups sustain the individual. We have philosophies that remind us of it if we ever knew. They suggest that we should treat others as we would like them to treat us. That's more than a belief. It is nature's law. And as I've said before, we can't break the law, even if we can break ourselves against it. Nature dictates that altruism is in our own best interest. The law happens to be tied to spiritual concepts of love, but I'll get to that idea a little later. Whether you've understood altruism to be nature's law or not dictates how you play the game of life. I was raised Catholic, so I learned the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I learned this very early on. After a good many years filled with an awful lot of contemplation in the wilderness areas, though, I've learned that a lot of people play the game of life with different rules than the ones I was taught. Many people see themselves as somehow apart from nature and therefore not a part of it. Not everyone has learned to play nice. Some are real rotters. It's like a jungle out there. 
Intuitively, we might suspect it, but then we set aside notions that human beings have a dark side. We'll wear rose-colored glasses to avoid thinking that people that we actually know might be playing the game with no idea of good whatever. Take a look at the state of politics in many places and you'll see what I mean. In previous episodes, I mentioned a study produced by Professor Carlo M. Sipoya, a professor at the University of California. He exposed rules that define what he describes as the greatest threat facing humanity today, human stupidity. Professor Sapoya described human behavior from three kinds of people. One, good people, who generally act with altruistic motives. Two, bad people, who generally act in their own interest only, even if it's to the detriment of others. And three, stupid people, who act to the detriment of others, even if it's to their own detriment as well. Sapoya's study tells us that an important finding on stupidity is that at any point we are surrounded by more stupid people than we'll imagine. And as Forrest Gump taught us, stupid is as stupid does. This should impress you. You might even have friends or family who display negative behavior or who serve the darkest and foulest moods, but you accept them because that's just the way they are. Adapting one's behavior to the law of love requires real work, but many people, bad and stupid people in particular, are not doing that work in any significant way. They're too busy doing other things. Most of us have learned about love at home, from family and significant others. As soon as possible, we were exposed to stories, myths, and beliefs that form our culture. These were used to fix our worldview, as I described in my last podcast. From amusing fairy tales we were told as infants and toddlers, to the epic adventures and historic events we learned in school, we forge a sense of how the world should be. A lot of people have expectations that life should include a great romance or a personal triumph of some sort. Others expect a house with a picket fence somewhere. Our expectations rarely include a disease or traumatic accident or financial destitution or even permanent disability. When I animate seminars and workshops, I often ask participants, how many of you have decided that you would like to end your life negatively? I'll tell them to imagine that to mean anything they'd like, but I'll raise their hand if they want to end up sick or crippled or poor or lonely. In the dozens of times I've asked the questions, I have never had a single person say me, I would like that. I want to end my life negatively. People just want to be happy. So then I'll draw a straight line and mark it on a whiteboard as a length A to B. I'll tell folks that that line represents their life, an indeterminate length measured as A to B. Next to the end point B, I write the word positive. We want our lives to end positively. I then explain that nature's law of movement asserts that each action has an equal and opposite reaction. And so, in order to end in positive reaction, we have to give off positive actions. I tell them that the only way to inherit positive reactions at the end of life is to seed the way with positive actions. I'll use equations to explain it. If you meet a negative charge, minus one, 
With a negative charge minus one, you have more negative. Minus one plus minus one equals minus two. If you meet a negative force with an equal measure of positive force, there is no more forward momentum. Plus one plus minus one equals zero. But if you meet a negative force with more positive, then forward momentum can continue. The only way to offset the negative energy is with more positive energy. Plus and minus are used to describe the relationship in which seemingly opposite ideas define each other. They also define the creation of universe. For example, atoms are composed of both protons, that is, a positive energy charge, and corresponding electrons, a negative charge. It's not either or. It's not plus one opposed to minus one, but both as represented in the equation plus one plus minus one equals zero. The seeming opposites complement each other. In this sense, zero doesn't represent a void, but rather an infinite possibility. Science has discovered that when a positive charge collides with a negative charge, there is no annihilation. Rather, the collision gives birth to a neutron. Neutrons are particles with no electric charge, and as such they can bind to any other particle in infinite ways and directions. Creation then emerges with an infinite potential. Infinite potential is created as the light emerges from the void. We call it the Big Bang, but then we only describe energy after it emerges from the void. This because infinity is played out at a level of complexity that includes both positive and negative as complementary forces. Historically, positive and negatives were explored in a moral sense as good and evil. But it is time to redress our thinking, because in the universal view, positive and negative don't fight as opposites, but rather they complete each other. Light, or positive, emerges from the dark, minus. Mass emerges from a void. We see the world with a duality that does not in fact exist. I can testify to it. I've had a direct experience of the light as it emerged from the darkness. I can relate every detail of it. I saw light emerge from hyperspace. The creation of universe is unleashed from the no thing, minus, as a positive energy in motion, plus. The no thing is limitless possibility. God's creating intent is what caused the Big Bang reaction, and reactions upon reactions and on and on in a never-expanding universe into some very distant future. At its origin, the blueprint for life has been in play for billions of years. And the proof is, here we are. We are the proof of the pudding. We are the product of a force as powerful as the will to survive. After millions of years of biological evolution, our sex drive commands us to thrive, to prosper. And that genetic fact is poorly understood by many people. Many folks mix up concepts like attraction, sex or mating with the idea of love. The fact of the matter is people believe all sorts of improbable stuff about sex. This because we have limits to our perceptions as I explained in the last episodes of the Jungle Times. We were taught by family and others in our social group how to be in the world. We've etched neurological paradigms throughout our brains. The result is that we perceive with an eye not eye duality that does not exist in universe. 
Many of our beliefs, therefore, don't really apply to the real world, except that believing makes them so. More than just nature, a new science called epigenetics explains that nurture has had a great deal of influence on us, too. We might define human drives from a biological perspective, but the values we give our definitions are cultural. We believe all kinds of foolish ideas, while the wonders of science are largely ignored. Believing improbable things is the cause of a condition called cognitive dissonance. That is, a breakdown of the mental faculties brought about by discord between what we perceive and what is. You should know that behavior that attempts to disobey the survive and prosper law is detrimental to our mental health. For example, we should all be preoccupied with any ecological disaster. Global warming should be a major concern with the world leaders because it has catastrophic consequences for millions of people. But a lot of politicians don't get it. No less than the President of the United States, arguably the leader of the free world, is a climate change denier. He looks at his local weather in the middle of winter as proof of climate conspiracy, and then he sabotages every effort to address the issue. That commander-in-chief doesn't seem to know that climate change has to do with carbon dioxide. Scientists know that half of the CO2 is absorbed by the oceans and that this provokes global climate change. Research also shows us that the introduction of massive amounts of CO2 into the oceans otherwise alters the water's chemistry and thus affects the life cycle of marine organisms. Equally worrisome is the fact that because the oceans continue to absorb more and more CO2, their capacity to act as a carbon dioxide storehouse is diminishing. This means more carbon dioxide will remain in the atmosphere and further aggravate global climate. The ideal conditions for human life require a very slim balance, and if we lose the oceans, then the entire biology will collapse. The biological evidence shows that industrialization is killing the earth. You know, folks, life can be seen as a game in which we get to choose how to play. In fact, how we play the game of life defines the game that we are playing. How you play will either sabotage your life or empower it. Happiness and success depend on what rules we are following. So if you want to find out a little bit more about life as play and possibility, I suggested that you read a book called Finite and Infinite Games by James Carse. I put the URL to a free copy of the book in the description to episode 3 of the podcast, How Nature Manages Complex Situations. In his book, Professor Carse explains life as both the countless finite games that people play and the one infinite game that is being played by the universe itself. Carse says that finite games are played for the purpose of winning, whereas the intent of the infinite game is simply to continue playing. As such, finite games have losers and winners, while the infinite game sees that everyone who is alive is a winner. This because the game's only goal is to play on. You'll see that relationships develop quite differently depending on whether you're trying to beat someone or help them play on. The rules of all of our finite games are determined by subjective metaphysics, or whatever the players believe. 
The rules of the infinite game, on the other hand, are determined by the universe itself, and they can be explored with the findings of physics. So far, physics tells us that we are energy in motion, regardless of what we choose to believe. If any of you are undecided as to what game to play, I suggest you watch a video called The Tsar Bomba on YouTube. I'll put the URL with the description to this podcast. But before you look at it, I'd like you to do the following mental exercise. Imagine that you are holding a cherry between the fingers of your left hand. Now imagine that planet Earth, the whole globe about 40,000 kilometers around, is sitting on your right hand. Now this might be a bit more difficult, but try to imagine both. The tiny cherry, the immense globe. The exercise involves seeing the planet shrink down to the size of the cherry as you also shrink the cherry down to its tiny proportionate point. Okay, from Earth as the size of a cherry, so the cherry would be what size? The answer is, the cherry is now the size of an atom. So, now go watch the Tsar Bamba. You'll see the kaboom. You'll see an atomic detonation, the equivalent of 50 million tons of TNT, a Soviet nuclear device 1,000 times more powerful than the one that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. The device released energy contained in atoms the size of that now super-shrunk cherry in your mental exercise. For an idea of the power released by that explosion, imagine in the tiniest point of space releasing enough energy to vaporize everything within 15 kilometers of blast center. Everyone in a radius of 100 kilometers from the blast would receive third-degree burns. The thermal pulse was felt for a distance of 270 kilometers, and radiation poisoned hundreds of kilometers beyond that. Shockwaves from the bomba were detected 700 kilometers from the blast site, and the windows were broken 900 kilometers from there. Watch that video so you won't forget, if you ever knew it, that you are the same stuff as that energy. Most people will see themselves as solid biology, meat, even if they know it isn't so. In fact, we are the energy contained by atoms assembled into molecular form and then tissue arranged into various body parts. It's not either or, a physical body or an atomic energy. We are both. You are biology and spirit, and if that doesn't convince you to play the infinite game, you should also know that the idea that we are nuclear energy is not new. Isaac Newton gave us the framework to explore that very notion back in 1687 when he published his masterwork Philosophia Naturalis Principia Mathematica. Even way back then, we knew that scientific method and mathematics helped us to explore the world. Many great minds left us their notes, and we have continuously added to their findings until we can now somewhat understand many of life's mysteries. Science has established that, contrary to belief, the physical world emerges from the relationship between four fundamental forces. Gravity and electromagnetism form the time-space continuum, and then the strong and weak nuclear forces, or the binding force and the radioactive force, assemble that world from energy. These four forces contain all of the energy released since the moment of creation. In 1904, Albert Einstein wrote his famous equation, E equals mc squared, 
to tell us that matter and energy are interchangeable. It took a first nuclear explosion to prove him to be undeniably right as controlled detonation released energy contained in solid uranium. Matter and energy are proven interchangeable. And then Max Planck explored energy as a constant frequency. Just because we see limited solid world doesn't mean the world of limitless energy stops being. He wrote the quantum equation E equals HF to tell us that energy is a constant frequency. And this is what allows us to explore radio or TV waves, cell phones, internet, and more. We tap into the frequencies of the electromagnetic field. At the atomic level, everything is connected. As such, everything has an effect, however subtle, on everything else. The poetic realization can be taken from the butterfly effect. Edward Lorenz, a Harvard-trained mathematician, defined chaos theory based on its findings. He described the butterfly effect as explaining sensitive dependence. He said that the slightest fluctuation in initial conditions can become the property of a dynamic system wherein reactions radiate out to produce colossal events. The beat of a butterfly's wing can become a hurricane half a world away. For several decades now, scientists study how mood has an effect on we human beings and how our DNA transmits information. A lot of study has gone into researching that subject. People who often experience bad moods, anger, hatred, and those others, inhibit their DNA from transmitting its information properly. As such, the message that confirms that you are more than biology or more than just meat that you're also energy, you're also spirit, might not be reaching you. And as I've often repeated, it's not either or, it is both. And because no one is above the law, we must now know ourselves as energy of universe, because that is our true nature. Next, I'll tell you about love at seven amplitudes and five magnitudes of energy. So stay tuned, I'll be right back. I was fascinated by findings that explain human perception as neurological paradigms, like I mentioned in the last episode of The Jungle Times. I told you how our perception is the result of consciousness linking neurons in our brain. I also told you about a phenomenon called the effect of paradigm that explains how we believe and then we work hard to make our beliefs come true. The resulting cognitive dissonance results in mental decline, and therefore it is self-sabotage. Researchers are happy to tell us that the human brain is composed of a hundred billion neurons, and these can connect in myriad ways so that we have limitless potential intelligence to draw from, except that each of the brain's neurons is separated from all the others by a synapse or a space. How consciousness links our neurons is decided by a chemical called a neurotransmitter. The brain's neurotransmitters are selected by a hormonal mix made from mood. It seems our mood is responsible for our mind. How do your moods originate? While seven glands in your endocrine immune system secrete hormones that create and maintain them. Arranged in ascending order, 
from low on the spine to the center of the brain, a series of endocrine glands are poised to release a cocktail mix of hormones into our system. The selected hormones enter the bloodstream and rush through the nervous system to our brain. There it selects the neurotransmitters that will connect specific neurons. The neurotransmitters selected by these hormones fill the synapses between neurons connecting them in the brain. A hormonal mix thus assembles our mind from a selection of neural pathways. The pathways link electric impulses into a stream of awareness we call mind. Imagine that. Words, the name we give to things and events, are just raw data or discarnate facts until they are linked together by a subjective mood. Then they become a flow of ideas in a subjective mind. In other words, an accident like the one I survived can be the worst thing that ever happened to someone or a real challenge, depending on the mood. My perception will depend on how my mood assembles the information to make up my mind. The accident that paralyzed me is a terrible thing, or this second chance at life is a wonderful thing. I chose to see my second chance as a positive challenge. That meant I had to master my moods and therefore learn about my endocrine immune system. I listed the seven glands that make up the system in a notebook and I started to track the reactions caused by the various hormonal mixes. My adrenal gland, for example, near the base of my spinal cord, supplies a rush of energy that triggers the burst of strength needed so I can respond to nature's first requirement, survive. People whose adrenal glands secrete a lot of hormone can have a manic energy like adrenaline junkies, but secreting low quantities of adrenaline in their mix might shape a depressed energy. At a higher amplitude, the gonads secrete hormones to help us fill nature's second command, prosper. It might come as a surprise to some folks to realize that their urge to prosper has little to do with acquiring money, wealth, or real estate. In the language of biology, to prosper means to go forth and multiply. Male sex glands include testicles, phallus, and prostate, while female sex glands include ovaries, breasts, and uterus. Our sex drive is designed so we procreate. If you produce a healthy mix of sex hormones, you take that command seriously. If you have a low hormonal count, the subject might not have a huge interest for you. So far, though, the hormonal cocktail that shapes our mind is limited to a mix of adrenaline and sex hormones. If you think about it, that's a recipe to be aggressive and horny. So next up in amplitude, we find the pancreas gland. It's a little higher at the solar plexus. Your pancreas plays an essential role in converting the food you eat into energy and fuel for the body. It also regulates blood sugar and thereby modulates our thinking. You'll be sluggish after a big meal or might lose consciousness if your blood sugar drops too low. Humans are then equipped for the life's journey, survive and prosper, and now you can metabolize the fuel you need as you go. Next up, at the level of the heart, you find the thymus gland, the immune system's most specialized gland. Aside from secreting a particular hormonal mix, this gland stimulates the creation of three kinds of T-lymphocyte cells. T-cells are critical to our adaptive system as they allow the body to fight off foreign invaders like bacteria, viruses, 
and even the larger enemies. The neurotransmitters selected by the thymus gland intuitively allow us to recognize the enemies out there, too. Aside from the development of T-cells, the thymus gland also creates B-cells, and they help the body defeat specific irritants and invaders. The thymus also releases hormones that inform the body that all is well and allows us to relax. It is interesting to note that the thymus gland is most active during neonatal and pre-adolescent years and that it begins to atrophy in the early teens. We'll talk about the flexibility and adaptability of kids, but then we get set in our ways. The thymus continues to function until our later years when the endocrine immune system begins to slow down leaving us more vulnerable to disease. So far, adrenaline enters the nervous system as the hormone empowering us to survive. And then our sex glands transmute this aggressiveness into an emotional response to a need to procreate. Add the pancreas as it translates those two impulses into thought and logic, and the thymus now adds reason to the fray as T-cells can really prolong our life, depending on our mood. So how do you feel? You can reach higher amplitudes. The thyroid and parathyroid glands are situated at the throat and they metabolize your body's energy. They excite you or they calm you down. Your thyroid activates your sympathetic nervous system which prepares you for action. It can increase your body's heart rate and blood pressure, decrease your secretion of saliva, dilate the pupils of your eyes, Increase the flow of blood in limbs to help you run and fight. Slow your digestion and cause contractions in your stomach. Increase your body's breathing rate. Spend a lot of energy in short bursts and stimulate strong emotional reactions. Your parathyroid activates your parasympathetic system, allowing you to rest and digest. Among other things, it can cause your breathing to slow down and your body to calm down. It decreases your heart rate and blood pressure, increases the secretion of saliva, contracts your pupils, drains energy away from your limbs, allows blood vessels to contract, speeds digestion by stimulating peristalsis movement, and it produces milder emotional reactions. Your thyroid gland is found at the lower front of your neck. It secretes the hormones that increase your metabolic rate. That is, it allows you to rev up. It also directs how your body uses proteins, increasing your energy. It thus makes you ready to act. It shifts your body into the fight-or-flight mode. Your parasympathetic gland is tucked in behind the thyroid. It secretes the hormonal blend that decreases your body's energy and thus calms you, downshifting your mood into the mend-and-befriend mode. The thyroid and parathyroid glands allow you to choose you can either excite and spend your energy or calm down and store it so it is contained and then can become a force you can focus as power. Self-control allows you to master your body's excite-relax mechanisms and that lets your will emerge as a conscious force. Willpower is accompanied by a mood that is akin to feeling lucky. Next in amplitude is the pituitary gland. That's an endocrine gland about the size of a pea in most humans, and it's located at the center of the brain, between your two eyes. It is often thought to be the mystic third eye. Among other things, your pituitary regulates physical growth 
and it manages several of the body's processes, including its stress reaction. It is also involved in reproduction. Your pituitary gland synthesizes and secretes a blend of hormones that regulate your blood pressure and the proper functioning of your sex organs. Along with the thyroid, it has an effect on your overall metabolism. And along with the thymus, it monitors your wellness. Recent studies have found that the pituitary gland manages important aspects of pregnancy and childbirth in women. It regulates the water to salt concentration in our kidneys, our body's overall temperature, and the body's capacity to ease its pain. It manages our well-being by allowing our mind to choose to experience a mood that entertains positive vision and change. Last, the pineal gland is where the spine meets the brain at the very center. The pineal gland is linked to a light-sensing organ that vertebrates species have called the parietal eye. Your pineal produces serotonin as part of a hormonal mix that modulates sleep patterns and allows you to be aware of dream states. It allows you to become aware of the spiritual frame behind the physical world. The pineal gland allows us to become aware of the spiritual frame behind physical existence. From the point of view of higher evolution, our pineal gland acts as a sort of photoreceptor, connecting our metabolic rhythms to nature's creating intent. French philosopher René Descartes called the pineal gland the true seat of the soul. Eastern traditions, like various yoga practices, have long contemplated these seven glands of our endocrine immune system at the energy level. Ancient texts explain how our biological body has access to a view of our true self as a subtle energy via seven transducers they name chakras. An ancient Sanskrit word, chakra means wheel. According to the wisdom, the seven chakras allow us to consciously connect with the divine by transforming our energy from its densest state, matter, to its most subtle form as Christ consciousness. The idea is that physical creation is indivisible from creator's intent. According to the ancient traditions, we are physical energy and we can connect to universal power at the first chakra. We transform that power into sexual energy at the second chakra. We draw our intellectual potential from the third, and our higher thinking comes from the heart or the fourth chakra. That is where our moods allow us to transform energy into awareness or spirit. A formula shows us how individuals acquire power at the fifth chakra. If your brain's synapses are flooded with the hormonal mix from your first four chakras, you can transform conscious energy into willpower at the fifth. You can master the energy in your sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous network, as explained in the formula, energy contained equals force, force focused equals power, and power minus obstruction equals vitality. From that universal perspective, an individual has to arrive at this creative synthesis because Evolutionary progress requires our willful participation. You can excite your thyroid gland by acting with your heart. Do what you love, all else will follow. At the fifth chakra, you transmute your vital energy to where it can be understood as energy contained in your cerebral spinal passageway. That energy, when contained, is a force. That force can be focused as willpower.
Individuals can explore even higher moods. If we act with love, we are empowered. So then our vision of joy can be shared and realized. Once focused, your willpower can be used to eliminate the obstructions that you may encounter along the way to a positive, joyful life. Creator's intent is that you invest your energy in motion, your emotion, to love without condition. For that to happen, your will has to be engaged in the doing. You have to want to. So then, at the sixth chakra, you formulate the required evolutionary insight. Altruism is in my own best interest. Once activated, your pituitary gland can focus your mood on resolving your life's ambitions. What obstacles are preventing your happiness? The seventh chakra provided me with the realization that whatever limits me must be fixed by me. That's the function of the pineal, to connect us with the metaphysical world, the creative realm within, from where we draw all of our insights on how to resolve the obstructions that limit us. And then we can see magic at work. As soon as you become aware of the link between what science knows about the seven glands of your endocrine immune system and what ancient spiritual doctrines say about the seven chakras, then you'll be amazed to discover just how your energy in here can actually influence the world out there. You can ascend in amplitude to the realm of self-mastery by increasing your energy. You can master your physical, emotional, and intellectual needs and then focus on your spiritual ascension. You'll discover the need for creative synthesis, I am, at the fifth dimension, the need for evolutionary progress at the sixth, and the need to self-actualize at the seventh. And then you'll be amazed to see that the universe responds to your higher moods. I'll be right back with part three of the podcast to look at creative energy as five magnitudes of love. Aware of it or not, we are energy or spirit. When we consider everything exists as a form of energy, though, we can easily see that love is also energy. So love can be measured as five magnitudes of energy. Wikipedia tells us that a magnitude is a measure that is arrived at by comparing things of the same kind. For example, a 50-watt light bulb emits fewer lumens than a 100-watt bulb. So the magnitude of light bulbs is measured as lumens of brightness. A thing's magnitude is ranked by the classification to which it belongs. As such, love can be understood as five intensities of energy, I'll call selfish love at magnitude one, symbiotic love at magnitude two, magnitude three is self-esteem, magnitude four is unconditional love, and then at magnitude five, love is magic. At magnitude 5, I spell out the acronym L-O-V-E to describe the limitless oscillations of vibrating energy of universe. My description is confirmed by Einstein's equation E equals mc squared in classical physics and by Planck's constant e equals hf in quantum physics. More than a shameless play on words, at magnitude 5, L-O-V-E, love is magic. By the word magic, I mean causing change to occur. So in other words, at this level, you cause the actions required 
so that universe fills the desired reactions. Let me briefly explain each of these five magnitudes. Magnitude one, or selfish love, is the love understood by a child. We were born into this world defenseless, and so our very existence screams, love me. Babies and toddlers need others to help them fill their basic needs. Today we can understand this better than ever before. We learn from a branch of science called epigenetics that children do much better if we kiss their boo-boos, tickle their toes, and otherwise provide for all of their needs with loving attention. A child cannot tell his guardians how he or she works. A baby cannot express his or her need for clean air, water, healthy food, adequate shelter, and all the rest. A toddler can only cry if things aren't right. Love me or I won't survive. Love at magnitude one involves having that selfish need filled by others. But if it is filled, then you can be raised to adolescence where you begin to explore love at magnitude two. This is where you experience symbiotic love as the basic need changes from a selfish love me to love me and I'll love you back. This is measured at a higher magnitude because there is more love in play. There is the love received and the love offered. A natural change in attitude occurs in adolescence where we are informed by DNA that it is time to mate and procreate. We'll talk about raging hormones, but teenagers are facing real physical changes. Soon enough, peer pressure starts to replace parental guidance because when we want to attract, the dating game is played quite earnestly. As so many marriages end in divorce, we should perhaps realize that symbiotic love is not all that well understood. We define symbiosis as the relationship between two organisms who live closely together and who rely on one another. Humans have long realized that the basis for partnerships of all kinds, including marriage, is a relationship where love is shared. But two people also bring all kinds of baggage to their relationships. If someone has not experienced love that nurtures, or if a person has not shown that quality of love as selfless giving, then what does that person bring to his or her relationships? Partners can access a higher magnitude of energy than they do in selfish love because love shared is multiplied as much as the partners know how to love. It'll happen that we experience energy ups and downs as we deal with the stress of daily life. Have you ever felt upset and then received love from a partner that helped make things right again? Or maybe a loved one was suffering and you brought wisdom to lift his or her mood. Love, joy, and happiness are among the few things that can be multiplied if they are shared. A symbiotic relationship allows us to give positive energy to another and to receive it when we need it. I know a lot of people who are trapped in relationships where little or no love is shared. We avoid a lot of drama if our adolescence provided us with opportunities to love others. Then you know, from your own experience, that love does indeed exist, as it is something you've done, you have loved, and you've felt better for it. Born into the world, you experienced selfish love as the care you got from others, and that allowed you to survive and even thrive. But then, as a teenager, nature expects you to evolve and discover how to love others so that you know what love is, that it is real, it's a mood, and it's something you must do. Imagine the following as an example of what I mean. 
Imagine a young fellow, feeling lost and alone, seated at a large table at a high school library. He doesn't have any close friends, so he gives a lot of time to his studies. After an hour or so, an attractive young girl invites herself to sit at his table. Shy, he nods hello. Then she proceeds to engage him in whispered conversations, asking questions about his reading habits, his likes, his dislikes, and his plans. As the afternoon progresses, he becomes enamored with her. Soon, he's in a relationship, and, with her outgoing personality, he's introduced to a much larger world than the one he had suspected. His life is now blissful. He shifted mood from being withdrawn and alone to leading with his heart, so now his worldview has changed. With that imaginary scenario, I want to expose the idea that we don't really feel the love that others give us. We feel the love that we give to others. The young fellow's mood changed after he was drawn to the girl, when he started to love her. Biologically speaking, his will to love another, to act positively on behalf of another being, raise his energy to his heart chakra, or his thymus gland, as I mentioned. The thymus not only secretes its particular hormonal mix, it manufactures those magical T-cells that heal whatever ails the body. The fact of the matter is that that young man's body benefits whenever he stimulates his thymus. I'll discuss the spiritual ramifications of this discovery a little later, but think about it for a moment. Loving others is more than a law of movement. Stimulating the heart chakra biologically benefits the doer, so that love is then a law of good. Now let's look at love at magnitude 3. Here we have to consider that relationships can either limit or excite our capacity to love. To experience love at level 3, you must know that love is good for you, and then you cannot allow others to impede your capacity to love. Most everyone knows that growing up isn't easy, even if we are filled with love as children and then we learn to love as adolescents, as young adults we soon realize that getting along with others can sometimes be painful. We learn that not everyone sees the world in quite the same way as we do, and some are nasty in their ways of seeing. It's like a jungle out there. I remember the study that says that there are more stupid people around than we suspect. These are flawed characters. They are probably aware of their flaws, but largely choose to ignore them. If you see yourself as flawed, as unworthy of respect, it is rather difficult to esteem yourself, especially if you are the author of your flaws. And without self-esteem, there is no way to explore love's higher magnitudes. The bottom line is this. It is impossible to develop self-esteem without working to correct your flaws. To esteem yourself, you have to rise above resistance to working on yourself. So becoming a self that you can esteem. Only from the work I did on myself, on my essential character, did I gain any sense of self-esteem after my accident. Totally paralyzed, I have to love and respect myself if I expect others to do so. And as it began to emerge, then did I learn that my personal growth could be translated into willpower. So many of the adventures I've had were a result of my inner work. I can assure you that it has never been a broken and paralyzed body that woke up thinking it might be a good idea to trek a jungle. I'm very curious by nature, and when I realized how much the tropical rainforest could teach me, I invested in overcoming every obstacle I faced to get there. So, 
I let a metaphysical spirit lead my physical body. I acquired personal power by following my heart, and that changed my destiny. Because as I acquired more power, I was offered greater leadership roles, and I had more opportunities to do what I truly wanted. I became a mature adult by taking responsibility for my life. In order to better manage myself, I explored love's fourth magnitude. Love is a law of movement, action-reaction. The universe itself is energy in motion, and so is everything in it, and that includes you and I. The physical world I once perceived as solid and out there is in fact energy, as Einstein showed us with his equation, and we can access that energy in here. Creators intend to unleash an infinite continuum of action-reaction relationships that are creating cosmos. Imagine if that unconditional energy in motion was adopted as social law. I mean, stop to think about the state of the world for a moment. We are facing ecological disasters, challenges from wars and threats of war, the grittiest corruption in politics and business, social injustice with an incredible inequality of wealth distribution, and so much more. Love is law could fix it all. In a single example, today more than one billion people on Earth are existing on less than $1.25 a day. Can you wrap your mind around that? Another half a billion people did not have access to safe drinking water this morning. Two and a half billion more citizens do not have sufficient water for proper sanitation purposes. Writing those wrongs could generate prosperity for decades. Imagine if we started fixing all of today's wrongs. While prosperity would reign everywhere, it would reign supreme. What about the money, you ask? I can hear your shouts. Who's going to pay for it all? A real clamor can break out. But if love is the law, all the contracts can be drawn, and we can start working on it as soon as the priorities are set. We'll carefully keep proper books. We'll track exactly where everything was spent. We'll pay for the contractors weekly as work progresses. And then, after all the work is done and everyone is living in a veritable paradise on Earth, when everybody is healthy, wealthy, and wise, then we'll balance the books or throw them into the trash can, whatever else amuses us on that particular day. This might sound a little simple, but only if you take love out of the equation. In 100 years from now, I'm sure our ancestors will be amazed to learn how stupid we were to have relied on a monetary system that belongs to others, to private interests, to a few individuals. This idea was not only illegal before the First World War, it has since proven to be bad for the vast majority of citizens. The current system gives banksters a percentage of every dollar that is produced. Well, the law of diminishing returns tells us this creates less wealth as time moves forward, no matter how much money is printed. Before World War I, most governments printed their own money and did not pay interest to others. The fact that our commercial and justice systems have allowed this folly to occur testifies to how conspiracy and collusion are rampant. The money system is bad, but because it works against the best interest of most people. In order to gain confidence in love as social law, we must first resolve those conflicts experienced in our own development. We have to set aside beliefs and expectations to act with love, and this without condition. Advocating for positive change 
taking a leadership role, these kinds of behaviors explore love at magnitude five. Taking your rightful leadership role in this society to do whatever you can to make it a better place so this will become the promised paradise on earth. By adopting unconditional love as social law, you soon recognize that the opposite of love is not hate. Hate comes from an emotional mix of aggression and fear. The opposite of love is apathy, that is, not acting with love. Many years ago, I decided to meet everyone with a single creating intent. That leaves no place for doubt. I'll just love them and let God sort it out. Now, after years of practice, I can testify that my decision has never tripped me up. People will soon enough reveal themselves to be either good, bad, or stupid. Rather than doubt the integrity of others, I let them reveal themselves. This idea is based on the biblical wisdom, by the fruit of their labor you shall know them. Also, you might have heard the expression, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Some people will use a stronger word, but the point is, in due time, people will show you their true colors, and then you'll have a decision to make. I don't keep my face in the traffic where I can take another hit. If you recognize the link between your behavior and how others respond to you, you have entered into a mood that I was taught when I was very young. It's called being in a state of grace by the Catholic Church. Other traditions might use different expressions, but the fundamental feeling is that you are the luckiest person alive. Zen masters call it Satori. Philosophers will discuss being enlightened and religions will explain cosmic or Christ or Krishna consciousness, or will even say having a Buddha mind. These all express a mindset wherein we are awake to our potential and feel blessed by that good fortune. If you consciously experience the action-reaction law as unconditional love, then you can access a magical way of being in the world. I was taught to open myself to these higher possibilities. Father Michael Kerper of St. Patrick's Church in New Hampshire describes living in the state of grace as a mystical experience. In Parable Magazine, he writes, Here we'll find the essential connection between life and the liberation from death. Living by our human nature, we eventually die. There is no escape. However, when God touches us through his grace, we begin to share in his qualities, one of which is immortality. Being in a state of grace thus liberates us from death. And he states, It is tragic to remain just in the state of grace without fulfilling all of the amazing possibilities that grace will provide. This allows me to reassert that magnitude five, love is magic. If magic is defined as the art of causing change to occur, you can act with love and let God's law take care of the details. Everyone has to acquire his or her own experience of how love is law has the power of transformation. But let me offer you one memorable anecdote from my own life. One day, I was buying a couple of things at the local dollar store when I was suddenly struck by the large number of items that you can actually buy for one dollar. Then a whole idea emerged. Susie and I were planning a trip to Costa Rica so we'd be there for the Christmas holidays. I left the dollar store and hurriedly wheeled home to share my idea with her. I asked her to phone a friend who lived in Costa Rica to ask her if any organizations were holding a Christmas party for needy children, and could we help? 
Her answers came back very quickly. One, a Christmas party was being organized for the town's poorest children by the local welfare office. Two, people were asked to donate a gift for a child whose name could be taken from a list. And three, yes, volunteers would be appreciated on the day of the event. Susie and I committed to donating gifts to kids, and we volunteered to be there at the appointed hour. In the interim, I went back to the dollar store and filled a large duffel bag with $100 worth of toys, games, coloring books, and crayons and such. And, on the day of the party, dressed in red and white and loaded with a huge bouquet of red and white balloons, we arrived with a magical attitude and a lot of fanfare. After putting our special gifts for the two names we drew under the Christmas tree, we introduced ourselves to the kids. I told them that we were from Canada, which is so close to the North Pole that we are friends with Santa Claus. I told them that he asked us to come and play with them because he is so busy getting everything ready for Christmas. We spent the entire day leading these kids in games of various kinds. We distributed my duffel bag full of goodies as prizes for those activities. We had lunch with them, enjoying ice cream and cake, and seeing them light up whenever they received their special gift. We engaged with them for hours, and that's when I understood that love is truly magical. I had no expectations for how this day would turn out, but I now marvel at the kids' smiles, their laughter, and their joy, and they quickly transformed the entire community. Everyone got involved in the spirit of the fiesta, and they had no other motivation but to have a fun day with these kids. The effort paid off big time. Late that afternoon, spontaneously when we were ready to leave, every child lined up to give us a hug, a kiss, or a hearty handshake, and many added heartfelt words of thanks in English and in Espanol. I saw that they were happy for having spent the time with us. I'll always remember a very young lad who very seriously stood in front of me, shook my hand and bowed formally. Then he offered me his sincerest best wishes and said he would pray very hard that I should walk again someday. I teared up, as I always do when I remember it. And on our way home, feeling like a million dollars, I told Susie that we had spent so little to buy so much joy. I had an idea that this random act of kindness would make me happy. And so I put into motion a little energy and acted it out and proved myself right. I focused on sharing positive energy in motion and was filled with positive emotion every inch of the way. I loved without condition. I acted and let God sort out the details. But I'll tell you what. A few days later, during that same trip, Susie and I were rewarded with an incredible deal. We bought the entire contents of a large garden center hundreds of exotic plants from a biology student for an unbelievable price. We met a fellow who had a project to save endangered plant species by growing them from seeds he hunted in the jungle. He told me that he'd plant his entire collection in the jungle reserve that Susie and I were building in exchange for his tuition fees for his last year at the University of Costa Rica. I asked him how much he needed, and he mentioned a piddling amount so tiny by any standard. Of course, I jumped at the deal to then realize love is truly magical when both the doer and the receiver benefit from God's grace. I'll conclude my presentation by reminding us that we can't break God's law. 
even if we can break ourselves against it. Don't let bad and stupid people detract you from living your very best life. As you move forward, consider the triune God. God the Father says of himself, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. God the Father is time itself. God the Holy Spirit says of himself, the creative spirit of God is omnipresent. That means everywhere, all of space. Here now, in space-time, God the Son is manifest as you and I, as all of creation. Experience yourself as God energy. Explore your own energy and motion, your emotion, from the mood available at seven dimensions in amplitude. And then connect with love at five magnitudes of brightness, from the selfish need, love me, to I love, God first and my brother is myself. Actualize your piece of paradise. Experience love as magic. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time in episode six. It's called From My Toolbox. Because self-empowerment begins with courage, I'll explore that subject. And because we can only acquire power if we have the right tools, I'll share four powerful ones that have helped me over the years. You won't want to miss that presentation. Folks, if you enjoyed episode five of the Jungle Times podcast, please give it a positive review. Subscribe to my channel and tell your friends about it. If you didn't like it, write and tell me why not. If you want a transcript of this podcast, visit my website at www.thejungletimes.com. Thanks again. I'll see you next time. Adios. The Jungle Times podcast was written and animated by Lawrence Poole. If you enjoyed his presentation, share it with your friends and colleagues, click the like button, and leave your opinions in the comment section. Visit thejungletimes.com to learn more about Lawrence and his adventures. Follow him on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. You can order his latest book, Invest in Your Creative Capital, from Amazon.com. Subscribe to this channel in order to receive all the latest news. Thanks for listening. Music